Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. And this week I speak with Annalisa Moravina, a writer, director, and producer of film, TV, theater, and founder of the production company, Fellow Traveler. We'll get into the details of her career, but she started out as a kid in New York, but she grew up in LA, left, went to UC Berkeley, came back, and then started on the business side. So every time we have a conversation, I come out knowledgeable of the business in a way that makes me feel empowered. One of the things I like to do here on the No Film School podcast is is find ways to scale these conversations that I have, whether it's scaling a coffee that I'd be having one-on-one with a director or a writer in a way, you know, how can I bring these conversations that I'd hope to be having anyway to you guys? And Annalisa is somebody that I've met over the last couple of years. We've become friends. And again, these conversations are always things that I'm like, oh, I wish everyone else knew this. So at dinner the other day, I was like, you need to just come on and we need to unpack this together. In our conversation, we unpack this consolidating industry and what it means for emerging filmmakers like myself and you, our dear listener, how we got here, how the industry has transformed, how we need to be living given this consolidation that we're experiencing. And we also dig into the structural economy of putting together a film. It's a very tactical episode, and I hope it's helpful for you as you're thinking about your next project. And now, my conversation with Annalisa Moravina. Your career in virtual production starts here and now. Earn your spot on tomorrow's set with Synapse Virtual Production in LA by enrolling in RIT's immersive 10-day course this June. An exclusive experience in LA, you'll get the foundation you need to grow your career in a virtual production studio, the kind behind the groundbreaking effects seen in Disney's The Mandalorian and Marvel's Avenger films. Limited seats are available. Learn more and enroll today at vpritcertified.education. That's vp.ritcertified.education. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour. Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight only on Disney+. Plus. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to the No Film School podcast. Thank you so much for being here on this rainy LA day. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure. Well, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. And every time I come out of a conversation, whether we're drinking wine or like briefly passing at a party, because I got to admit, we show up for each other's parties. I come out like 
with more knowledge and feeling energized about my career, about this industry. And, and usually it's like taking something that used to feel incredibly overwhelming. And then I'm like, oh no, this is something I can do. So I'm so excited to have you on and I'm so excited to see where this conversation goes. Thank you so much. That is delightful to hear. And I'm so glad that it doesn't come across as all doom and gloom because it's tough out there. <laughs> it's tough out there. It's tough out there. Before we get into the state of this consolidating film industry, I'd love to hear how you got your start. Yeah. So I had a very traditional Hollywood kind of upbringing, I guess you could say. I'm from Los Angeles. I grew up surrounded by the industry. And my first real job was in the mailroom at WME. And I was pushing a mail cart. And then I was the assistant for an agent who specialized in international talent. I had a uniquely good experience there, I think, because I had a lovely boss. But but yeah, it was the typical agent experience. This was pre-me too. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. This is old school, old school agency. And then I became uh, an assistant and sort of fake creative executive at a production company on one of the major studio lots, working mm-hmm. on the development of big studio productions. And I say fake executive because that's sort of how that worked. Like you were basically still an assistant, but in order to keep you, they would give you um, a title and not more money. And then after that, I uh, got a job running development for a company called Bazlevs, which was founded by Russian filmmaker Timur Bekmambetov. And we operated basically as an independent studio. So I was head of development and I was VP of production. And we produced a number of low-budget genre movies. And the biggest one, the most successful ones were like Unfriended with Blumhouse and Searching, which premiered at Sundance. And then in 2019, I, from the encouragement of my friends, left my job as an executive and decided to pursue being an independent artist. And yeah, moved to London for a couple of months to write my first script. Came Mm -hmm. back in January 2020. And now I, I founded my production company, Fellow Traveler, and I continue to produce and write and direct film, television, and theater. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, and you're, you're, you're creating, <laughs> it, that's, it's such a, it's, it's so, I think it's more rare, especially as an emerging filmmaker that I, and I put myself in that category to meet someone who has such like deep industry knowledge and not only just from growing up in the industry, but also from coming up in the industry on the business side, which I think is why I always like our conversations always resonate with me because I have a past, my career before this, which I also left in 2019 is on the business side of podcasting and publishing. So as I've started over and had to basically start from square one in learning story structure and how a script works and how to convey a moment via the camera and shots and sound is like so so starting over it's funny i have had less insight into the business side so it is very interesting and helpful so we were at dinner the other night having some drinks <laughs> open sesame right in the middle because you're west side i'm east side so we meet in the middle and that is a sign of a good friendship. But <laughs> we started to talk about the the state of the industry because it it feels very bleak, it feels very uncertain, it feels very scary and it feels like an emerging creator like me has no place in the industry. So 
So talk to me a little bit about like the state of consolidation we're in and how that has changed from when you were coming up and when there was development. Yeah, sure. I mean, the first thing I'll do is validate all your feelings. I often feel the same way. I think it would be helpful to kind of frame this question as like, how did we get here? What has Mm -hmm. changed in order to see uh, where we are now? So what has changed is that taking a sort of 50,000 foot view, as consumers have started watching more internet, they have been watching less film and television, right? That is sort of the underlying broad truth that there's fewer TV shows and fewer movies that are being consumed. I mean, not fewer that are being consumed by audiences, but those, those kinds of products are competing with all kinds of internet, social media, whatever for people's Video attention. Games, That's sort of a podcasts, truism. Everything. Everything. TikTok. Like 20 years ago, yeah. 20 years ago, we didn't really have those things. Now we do. So plethora of options, right? So that fundamental truth was obscured by an industry-specific phenomenon, which was that we had the rise of Netflix. We had a change in technology, which was the ability to stream. And you had a few companies competing to become dominant in that market, right? So you had Netflix, you had what was called the streaming wars, where these various companies were spending a ton of money in order to become the dominant force in that market. And functionally, what that meant for us in the industry was that lots of people were getting hired and tons of shows were getting made, right? I mean, everyone's heard about this, you know, peak Mm -hmm. TV era. And that, (laughs) again, obscured what was the actual uh, pattern, which was a decline in how much film and television is probably necessary to be produced in order to serve the market. And Mm -hmm. over the last couple of years, the combination of the pandemic and the strikes have really crystallized this disconnect because now we have a ton of people who are working in the industry, who got shows made. There was a ton of content made. There was a ton of money being spent and all that money is now being turned off, right? As the streaming companies have sort of reached this plateau, you might've might have heard other people talk about how Netflix is now beyond a doubt the dominant force, right? That's mm-hmm. true. And the other companies who have been competing in that space are now going to be going through a period of consolidation where they, and this, this was one of the main arguments of the Writers Guild when they were arguing in the strike for, you know, for, for their deal. They're talking about this coming wave of media consolidations, which would mean that they'll be, basically what it means for us is that like over the course of the next five years, There'll be like three or four streaming companies and streaming TV is going to look a lot like how cable used to look. It's going to be mm. expensive. You know, the we're already seeing that with the raising of prices across the board. We're seeing that with the introduction of ad tiers where people have commercials, right? The As the technology has grown, as the market share has shifted, people, as the industry is beginning to reform itself in the shape it used to have before on cable television, but now in, in internet TV streaming. Okay. So yeah. what does that mean for a filmmaker who would like to make their first movie? Nothing yes, great. Yes. <laughs> what it means is that a period of consolidation means a period of conservative decision-making and conservative decision-making on the part of buyers means that they would like to bet on projects that feel less dangerous and feel less risky. And what 
how do you do that in a film or a television project? You bet on someone who has had a previous success. Yeah. And yeah. so it's a particularly tricky moment for us because we just came out of a period where a ton of stuff was getting made. So there, if you haven't made something yet, there are a lot of people ahead of you on that list who have made something. And those mm-hmm. people are always going to be a safer bet from a buyer perspective than someone who hasn't made anything and hasn't proven themselves. Right, right. So, <laughs> so, so that's sort of the, the arena we're facing. I have a specific question about these buyers and how they're defining previous success. Does it have to be like a monetary success, like an indie film that has sold and made someone money? Or could it be something like, I have an audience, I have a huge TikTok following, I have, you know, this viral web series, like is, or is it just, yeah, are we in such a place of conservative, like it has to be tied to money? I mean, I, I, I can't speak for all buyers who probably all have different perspectives, depending on what their goals are and what they perceive their audience Mm -hmm. to be. The sort of truest true is that in our industry and in our society, success is tied to money. Uh So, (laughs) So here, I can give you a really concrete way of looking at it, right? Why is it that when you're um, putting together an independent film, you need to try to cast people who have high foreign sale numbers. Why is that? It's a guarantee. Because high, it, it's, <laughs> it's the closest you can get to a guarantee. Closest. That, yeah. yeah, that this person whose presence in a film has previously made the investor's money will possibly do so again. Mm-hmm. This is also why, you know, as a young filmmaker trying to make your thing, you try to get what I think of as like a godfather on your project, mm. you know, it, and this is something I resisted personally for a long time. Cause I was like, no, I know how to put together. I've produced movies. I can, I can do this. We don't need to do this. The old fashioned Hollywood. Yes, you do. Um, <laughs> you, the, the presence of an entity as part of your project, a producer, you know, a fancy A-list production company, those things. I'm, I'm speaking about this totally outside the the relevance to the creative aspects. I'm talking about the functional probabilities of getting it made. Yes. Attaching elements to your project that have made money for someone else in the past will make it easier for you to make the case that you're not going to lose your investor's money. Yeah. And, you know, I I I I joke about this as one of my favorite quotes. I think I told it to you before. When bankers get to this is an Oscar Wilde quote. When oh. bankers get together, they talk about art. When artists get together, they talk about money. <laughs> um, and that's because it's and that's because it's hard to get. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. Yeah. And 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 there are a lot of structural reasons why it's hard to get as an early career stage artist in our country, right? We don't yeah. have state financing for the arts, like most Western, in fact, I think all Western nations apart from the US. We don't have a ministry of culture. There is no state support for the creation of creative product. And so we're entirely reliant on independent financing and and capital or corporate financing through Mm -hmm. studio streamers, whatever. And yeah. And so in a market where those buyers are being more conservative, that capital is harder to get. In terms of your, like to, to your point about, you know, is it just about money or is it about clout or social media following all these other things? would really depend on the project. Honestly, I think the short answer is 
Maybe, but probably not. I think yeah, what those yeah. things get you are attention in, in the sense that like someone will consider your project, but then you yeah. still need the piece that's like, okay, now I'm going to look at your project instead of all these other projects. Right. Yeah. Um, because your project has something sparkly because you, you know, you developed an audience here or this, that, and the other, unless you developed an audience that you've monetized and you've proven that you've made money for someone, I think on a, on a pretty fundamental level that just gets you through the first threshold. And then you still have to figure out this more business strategy of how do I ensure that this project that I'm pitching is financially viable? How can I assuage the fears of an investor? And I think the social media landscape is developed, I I think 10 years ago, maybe. (laughs) In fact, I know because when I was an executive (laughs) 10 years ago, yeah, I could pitch projects to my then boss on the basis of someone having been a YouTube star and they'd be like, ooh, you know. But, But I think it's been demonstrated that relatively few of those talents can convert, as they say, to to yeah. the other industry. And there just isn't a huge track record of, you know, those kinds of projects or people coming from that space consistently becoming uh, money-making machines. There are yeah. individuals who are awesome and and who have done that, but as a it's not a it's not a, a business template, you know. So I I don't think you can rely on that as being enough. You still have to craft a project that feels very makeable and not risky to an investor. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to paramountplus.com to try it free. So what I like about these conversations is I feel like you're kind of helping me narrow down things that I should put my energy towards, including coming up with an idea, working on a script that would attract talent that would be, you know, falling into that category of foreign sales. And for our, our yeah. new listeners, what exact, what could, could you drill down into yeah, sure. um, what and, that and, means? And, and, and I'll preface <laughs> this by saying like one of, to me, the most interesting, but also most complicated aspects of working in film and television is that it requires so many different skill sets and so many different buckets of knowledge. And right. I'll start by saying like, nobody has all of them. (laughs) You know, everyone is better at some things than others, but especially if you're just starting out and you know, you, you haven't come up in the industry and you're just trying to find your way. It's really helpful to kind of build yourself a little atlas of what are all of these little buckets of knowledge that I can explore. And the information is there. Like, yeah. It's in it's in books about filmmaking. It's in the trades that you should read. It's in talking to people. Like 
This is all accessible information. It's just not organized. You kind of have to magpie it and, and pick it up yeah. yourself. But, but anyway, to your, your question about what, what are foreign sales? What are foreign sales? So foreign sales. Back in the day. <laughs> and actually, and then they're coming back now. So foreign sales refers to the sale of the rights to distribute a film in countries that are not America, right? Domestic sales refers to North American or specifically U.S. distribution, specifically theatrical distribution, although sometimes also streaming. And foreign means not America. And the way that independent film was put together for many, many years was that on the basis of the elements involved in the project, the cast, the director, the script, the subject, the budget, producers and agents would go talk to distributors in all the various markets, Europe and Korea and India, wherever. And those buyers would make them offers for the right to distribute that film in their market on the basis of those proposed elements. And they would uh, give you what's called a minimum guarantee, an MG, of, okay, if you make this movie with, with this script and these actors, we think we can make at least $10 on it. So we're willing to give you $10 up front for the rights to distribute it in Belgium or whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you would sell off what are called territories. You would sell off territories and that way you would accumulate um, a certain amount of money towards your budget. What's great about that system is that that, is, that reduces the risk for the equity investor who would come in after. Quick sidebar, what is equity? Equity is someone's money. <laughs> yes. Someone's money, private money. That's, you know, yeah. that's coming in the form of cash, right? And if you're an equity investor and you're investing in a project where a significant part of the budget has been provided by selling off foreign territories and also what's called soft money, which is state money, which is tax credits, regional funds, things that are available from specific geographical locations. Mm -hmm. Then if you, the equity investor, are putting in the other piece, it's a more attractive investment because those other two investors, the state and the foreign territories, they, they don't need to be paid back before you. You as the investor will be paid back. So first, ahead of those other forms of income. So yeah. let's say you made a movie for uh, $20 million and uh, you made most of your budget in foreign sales and soft money, but you had an equity investment of $10 million mm -hmm. and your movie is a complete flop and it only makes $10 million back. You, the equity investor, are going to be paid back your investment, even though it was a flop because, of, because the other two sources of money and financing for your film where the state who don't need to be paid back on the same terms right. and the foreign sales. So, so that was the, the sort of ecosystem that sustained the industry for a very long time. And that's, that's what's important about foreign sales. And I will say it does mm -hmm. seem like they are coming back. Oh, so and they this, did go away. Like it felt like they, they went they away. Kind of yeah, they went away because when the streamers came up, the initial sort of operating modus operandi of, of like a Netflix was that they wanted to buy all of the rights for your film, all of the foreign right. rights, all of the domestic rights, right? And they would give you one fee with a premium. This is what was called the cost plus form of deal making, where they're like, basically, we're going to pay you up front, whatever you know, we estimate you would have gotten in box office bonuses or blah, 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 blah. And what that did was because they were buying off all the rights, 
that eliminated the source of financing because it it really degraded that combined with the pandemic when people weren't going to films, it really degraded the ability of foreign distributors to compete for these projects. And, and, but this, this is something that is now shifting as part of this period of transition. Like, again, you may have heard that now Netflix is not necessarily licensing all rights for a project and that they're open to windowing with theatrical distribution, or maybe they'll only buy domestic and you can, so, so this is in flux, but the, the sort of consequence of that initial rise of the streamers was that it, it really severely impacted the independent film market because it it just really really harmed the foreign sales ecosystem because netflix is sort of shifting away from that it does feel like the comeback makes sense and netflix and streaming can be a part of it like do they offer mgs i don't know if i can really if i can quite speak to that but they certainly do buy, like, instead of being the primary distributor, they'll buy the rights to be the secondary distributor mm-hmm. for certain projects. So maybe yeah. it'll first be distributed by a local company in France or whatever. And then France will, and then the French Netflix will buy the rights to stream the movie after. That's windowing, right? Yeah. Windowing yeah. is first a theatrical window and then a streamer window. Or maybe you'll have a window that's first on this streamer and then a second window that's this other form of digital distribution. So, yeah. Yes, as part of the larger conversation around the streamers being more open to windowing, I, I think that is I think that is the direction we're going in. That being said, there's still plenty of projects that I think the streamers are buying at cost plus still. Yeah. So so you're I'm I'm speaking to an imaginary emerging filmmaker named Elaine. Mm-hmm. She has a feature that she wrote and wants to direct. She what does she do next? Like to me, it sounds like you want to find a producing partner and it might be worth going to like a, a, the American film market or the Gotham project market, something like that, where you can find somebody who can sort of help put together this type of foreign sales deal. Is that like the right next step? Or do you want to find a producer who can help do that? Like what, what is I the, think, yeah, I think somebody started from I square think that's one. A, someone starting from square one, the conversation I would have with yourself is, what resources do I have where I am? That's mm-hmm. where I would start. I think it's, it's sort of the same thing I say from both the creative side and the business side. It, if you're trying to aim at some specific target that someone has told you is the right thing to do or, or that you've derived as the right thing to do, I, I think you, you end up on a, on a bit of a wild goose chase. I think you have to work. Mm-hmm. What, I, what I always say to myself anyway, work with what you have, you know? Yeah. And, and also not to be reductive about it, but I find it really helpful to to think about projects. Am I, is this a project I'm making as an artist or is this a project I'm making as a business proposition? And that requires a certain amount of clarity of vision about whether your project is actually commercially viable. I'm not saying don't make it if it isn't, but I'm yeah. saying it will help you think about how to put it together differently if you have an awareness of what it is you're trying to make. If you're trying to make what is essentially a work of art, then you're approaching it the same way all artists and all disciplines are trying to make their work of art. And again, in Europe, there's state financing for the arts. Here, there is not. And everywhere in the history of artists, we have required patrons, right? So if what you're making is essentially an art film or you're, and this can even be a sneaky business proposition uh, as a way of accessing certain uh, investors. 
But if you're, if you're looking at it as a work of art, you're looking for people who are going to be investing in your film as, as a patron, essentially, and who are not exactly doing it for uh, business reasons. No return not, on investment guarantee in that situation. I mean, look, realistically, there's never a guarantee of return and investment, yeah. but it's, it's sort of a different valence of, of right. proposition, right? Like if you're going in there with, basically, if you're going in with an art film and you're pitching to like the most business oriented financiers or whatever, they're going to laugh you out of the room, right? So like, it's kind of yeah. like know your audience and, and know. <laughs> I want to make a three hour movie where no one talks and it's talks, about my yeah. own life. Like, by all means, I fully support you doing that. But, and, and I, and I don't mean to be, I'm not being glib, but like know who your audience is to support that film and to give you the money to do that. That's, you know, no one owes it to you. It's going to be someone who's interested in you as an artist and, and, you know, wants to be a patron of your work. And if you can sell that in, you are a very talented salesperson. Yeah. Then call me. Let's be producing partners. Um, Yes. Yes. But, but I, and again, I'm not being dismissive because I think that there's real overlooked source of financing in, and this is something you and I have talked about, like money is not necessarily all concentrated in Los Angeles and New York. Like money is wherever there are people who've made money and Mm -hmm. supporters of the arts and patrons of the arts are in every city in, in the country, right? Whether you're in a red state or not, like every city has people who love film and theater and music and these things. And so this is sort of what I mean about figure out what resources you have where you are, figure out who the cultural patrons are wherever you are, because those might be an extremely interesting source of support for your project, which may not be able to compete on the sort of like industry level. If you were to try to just move out to LA and start pitching the producer, right? Like yeah. Out here, you're competing with literally everyone who's moved out from their hometown to do that versus, you know, figuring out what resources you might have where you are. Yeah. And, yeah. and I say that like kind of wishing I had more resources in other parts of the country. I grew up here. I don't, you know, <laughs> I, I, I don't know anyone in other cities who would be interesting in that way. But, but yeah, that's that's one thing to look at. The other half of your question was what if what if you what to do if you actually do want to approach this from um, a sort of like, let's say you, you don't know any rich people in your hometown. Fair. I don't <laughs> really either. I know no rich people. What do I do? I need, I need yeah. non, non-patron funding for my project. Okay. Then what you need to do is be a clever little animal in terms of how you're putting your project together. And, and that means doing a smart analysis of what can get made. I can be right. prescriptive and tell you stuff that I, I think works. But with the giant caveat of like, please make the thing that's most interesting to you. Otherwise, it's not going to be interesting and it's not going to sell. Period. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you, yeah. If you like, don't care about it. Like it will, that will show. Like, yeah. If you're making, it kind of come back to, comes back to what we had Lulu Wong on the podcast the other day. And she was like, you can't follow the market trends, but. I think you can be in a way smartly informed by the market trends yes. and follow your bliss within that. But like, yeah, talk to me about like, you know, the things that people's ears perk up when they're obvi- like the low hanging fruit is like horror. Yeah. People are like, oh, horror sure. has a dedicated um, audience. A I, sure bet. For, for sure. I would say rather than think of it in terms of market trends, which do shift 
all the time. Yeah. I would think about it in terms of the structural economy of putting together a film, right? How do you make this film a not scary investment? And if you look at it that way, I think it might free you up a little bit in terms of genre and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. first things first, make it real low budget. Yeah. <laughs> right? the, yeah. the safest investment <laughs> is one where you're not risking a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. So, so start, start there. And your definition of low budget might be different from my definition of low budget. If you have the ability to put together an awesome film, as I know you have, Gigi, for under a quarter million dollars, great. I'm not here pitching micro-budget features because I know that they're just as hard to make as not micro-budget features. Mm -hmm. But whatever very low budget means to you, that's what you're aiming for. You want to make it for absolutely as little money as possible risk, as like as little risk as possible. Okay. Mm -hmm. Point number two. Get some of that money for free by shooting it in a place with tax credits, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like don't shoot it in California, which is the most expensive place to shoot. Shoot it yeah. in Louisiana, in Tennessee, in Alabama. If you have access to Europe, literally almost Go any state Europe. in Europe, <laughs> you know, yeah. organize, like give yourself a project that is makeable in a place where you can get some of your financing for free. And as a sort of back of the envelope, like guideline, most tax credits in most countries and states kind of net out to about 20% of your budget. So maybe it says, oh, it's 35%, it's 40%. There are always a lot of like details around that. Like it's 35% of the qualified spend of the back of the envelope. It's the free money you can get from various states is usually about 20% of your budget. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you have a low budget. You're shooting it in a, in a place where you can get some free money. Point number three, write a script that is awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not going to yes. give you any advice on how to do that. That's a different podcast. A different podcast, not underline, good, underline. <laughs> yeah. Make <laughs> a project that's really good. Okay, great. We've done yeah. that. Point number four, make sure that that script has roles in it where you could potentially cast an actor who is valuable. That means the smart little animal is not going to make a movie where everybody is 20 years old. Okay. Yeah. Because casting, because there are very few actors who are quite young who have either the track record of having made a lot of money or, you know, any kind of real value for an investor. And those that do, like, Sendai is not available. (laughs) You know, like, you got to be realistic. So if you take a look at a lot of the more successful movies coming out of Sundance and stuff like that, you'll see that they have an interesting role for an older actor or especially an older actress mm. who is not getting as many offers, right? Like if you've written an yeah. awesome script and it has a really cool role for a lady over the age of 50, you can have, you can like legitimately have those conversations about casting with someone who has real value. Because those yeah. ladies are not getting as many offers for interesting roles, right? Whereas if everyone yeah. in your in your movie is a hot thirty year old, like short of having some kind of <laughs> yeah, short of having like a great personal relationship with someone who has access to that talent, and like I don't know, you've been dating them and they owe you something. <laughs> yes, it's, it's it's not going to happen. So yeah. so yeah, those are those are sort of the key points. Make it really low budget. Get some free money by organizing it to to make sense to shoot somewhere where there's soft money and make the write it in such a way that the 
and look, there also with, with the casting, there's sort of two ways of doing that. You can make a look at, look at, I don't know, for some reason I just thought of hereditary, but like, yeah, getting Tony Collette was, I'm sure the linchpin to getting that movie together, you know, but sort of the other approach to, to projects like that. And, and there are much smaller budget movies where, where that is the case. I think if you just look at the latest Sundance lineup, you'll see movies that do that. The other piece yeah. is, you know, sometimes those actors can be very expensive, but it can be worth it. Like in my own project right. that I'm putting together, that's my first feature. There's a role that's essentially a cameo. And if I, I can manage to cast a, a very famous older dude who has a lot of foreign sales value, then the mm-hmm. amount of the like overpriced fee that I will have to pay that actor to be on my set for a few days to shoot this role will be made up for the, by the amount I can get in foreign sales to finance the movie. So again, this really requires a level of strategy and, and thinking about yeah. how to structurally put the project together. That is a separate conversation from the creative elements. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's something that, you know, like you said, write an amazing script, but like, if you can write an amazing script and have these elements in the back of your head mm-hmm. where you're like, I mean, it could be wine country in California, or it could be, there is wine country in Oregon, Louisville, yep, you know, Montana, like just being kind of open and receptive to that can open up or open opportunities or I think your point of the being realistic about the type of talent and the type of characters. I also think there's something to be said about like creating a film that is telling a story that has characters that are outside of, you know, the 20 year old market, especially, you know, of course our audience tends to skew younger, tends to skew emerging. But like, if you can tap into that or tell a story around that, I think it will just like give you a lot more gravitas and people will take you a different type of seriously. That makes sense. Completely. And, it, you know, the the only thing I'll say about the sort of creative side of things, because nobody needs anyone to be prescriptive about what you should and shouldn't write. But the more you can focus on the thing that's yours and a reflection of your point of view as an artist, and that is mm-hmm. a boring thing that everyone has said at every <laughs> podcast and, and every festival, but it's it's really it's really true. I think, especially for young artists who are learning how to write films and learning how to create films and kind of learning as they go, as we all do, you sort of start by imitating things that you've seen. And that's normal. That's, that's how you learn how to master the tropes or whatever. But when you're getting to the point where you feel like this is the, the right project to sort of help you crack through as an artist and establish yourself in, an in, in the industry and, and like it's the thing you want to make, the more it reflects your individual perspective on the world, yeah. probably the more compelling it'll be. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. One of the things we touched upon over 
dinner and maybe maybe two drinks in was the reality <laughs> of the next 10 years and how we can be sustaining ourselves. And I, I, yeah. I want to just call out how important it is to acknowledge like we are all working many, we are all working other jobs. Like this is a job oh, yeah. that pays my rent. You had, you're like, I just booked I have three jobs. another <laughs> job that is, yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so like the economics of that and how, how should people be thinking about supporting themselves while also putting together their indie film so they can be one of the people who 10 years from now, once the, the industry stabilizes and is outside of this contracting phase, like still be around. Yeah. Well, I did get a prescription for anxiety medication. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So this is this is real. This is a real this is a real challenge. And this is why that Oscar Wilde quote still hits so hard. Um, yes. Look, ha- I'm I'm gonna say I'm gonna say a couple of things on this subject close to my heart. One, I I do think that the industry will shift again because it always does. That's just how history operates. Like, yeah. you know, the currently the economic situation broadly is messy post pandemic and the high interest rates. Like I always yeah. joke with one of my writing partners, he'll send me an idea for a project and I'll be like, this is a cool idea, but this is a high interest rate project. <laughs> this, I'm sorry, mm. this is a low interest rate project, not a high interest rate project, Yeah, yeah. which by which I mean, you know, in a period where there is more money flowing in general and where buyers are not as conservative, you can, it's easier to take a risk on a project that is not as conventional, but but yeah, you know, things will shift. The economy will shift. The companies will consolidate. And in all likelihood, I think there probably will be another Reddit. Everyone will be like, oh my God, it's like the 1970s again. Like, yay. But I think that's in seven, seven to 10 years. It it just takes a minute for, for everything to kind of settle down. And that's, uh, a hard timeline when you're talking about people's real lives, including my own. Yeah. So I think we all have to have pretty frank conversations with ourselves about what it is we want to do with our time and our careers and our lives. And there are multiple competing interests. People want to have families. People want to be able to live a stable life where you're not hand to mouth. You know, people have ambitions where there's certain work they want to make. I think part of the maturity of getting into my 30s has been a really massive reframing of what's really important to me. Mm-hmm. Having, again, come up in the industry and grown up in Los Angeles, I think when I first imagined a career, I really imagined it at scale. Like before yeah. I decided to be an artist, I was like, okay, maybe I'll be a producer. You know what? I'm going to run a studio. That's how I saw my life. I was like, well, I'm 25 years old. I was naive and very ambitious. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm going to run a studio. And then when I first decided to be an artist, I was like, oh, well, I guess instead I will found a studio. You know, I'll make the next Uh imagine. Why not? Uh, (laughs) And then I no longer had a salary as an executive and no longer had an expense account because I had made the decision to be an artist and I had to hustle for myself and I don't come from a trust fund. And so I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) Even though intellectually I knew that this was hard, this actually feels different and harder than I yeah. thought it would. Yeah. And and granted, this is in a period where the city I live in, Los Angeles, has become much more expensive and cost of living has yeah. gone up for everyone and inflation and blah, blah, blah. Right. So so I had to do a personal reframing of what is actually important mm-hmm. to me. And I had to ask myself, like, what is it about this career that makes me want to do it? And 
for me, it is working with actors. That's what it is. It's working mm-hmm. with actors in theater. It's working with actors in film and in television. It's the circus aspect of the industry that I love. It's the feast or famine kind of quality. And that's a temperament, you know, like yeah. being happy with the sort of abrupt rise and fall of emotions and fortunes. That's a temperament. That is not a talent. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's something you can develop. If you're someone who by nature craves a certain level of stability, this is an extra tough time to be in what is already an unstable business. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, and if you're someone who is really excited by and interested in being part of the hurly burly ecosystem, which I completely understand and respect, but which is different from the process of working with other artists sometimes. This is also sort of a tough time to do that because that part of the ecosystem is contracting. So there's just less room for it. You know, those people are probably working in AI or, (laughs) you know, like like if what you're drawn to is the heat and, and the, and the movement and the idea of being at the vanguard of a, of a cultural thing or like, you know, part of the front of society, Hollywood was that for a period. I, I don't know if it is in the same way now. So, yeah. so I would say as you're like contemplating what to do during this difficult period, the, the first thing you have to do is what we all have to do as we become adults is really look at yourself and what's really important to you and what you really want. Right. Yeah. And to not rely on the sort of older narratives of how to do things. 10 years right, ago, right. I would have said, or even pre pandemic, six years ago, I would have said, look, you're serious about being a filmmaker. You're in your 20s. Like you got to come to LA, you got to do that. You got to meet the people. You got to be part of the scene. You got to do this, that, and the other. That's before rents went up 25%. Yeah. I I can't in good faith tell you to do that if you don't have independent means because it's, it's just not the reality we're living in anymore. So I don't say that as a discouragement. I say that as a opportunity to know yourself better and know what it is you really want. And when you do that, you can orient your attention to how to get that. And once you know, yeah, you put everything you've got into it. But Mm -hmm. if what you really want to do is have meaningful interactions with other artists and collaborate with them, you don't necessarily have to move to Los Angeles to do that. You know, right. You have to figure out the most interesting way of doing that for yourself. Yeah. The the temperament of being in this uh, position, it's so... Interesting that you identified that because I, I think that's something I learned about myself in this last year in in making this movie, but also just like learning how learning how to exist in this way. And I think that I realized that I am built in a way that is okay with sort of seasonal experiences mm-hmm. where it's like I'm in the season of writing, writing and building out my 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 portfolio. I'm in the season of production, which is everything else falls by the wayside. I'm in the season of resting and being $17,000 in credit card debt. It's just a Mm -hmm. season and it's temporary. And like, Mm -hmm. I know that summertime will be a season of just working in order to pay that off and not being as prolific in a way, which then hopefully leads to a season of like the movie premiering at festivals. But like, that is a different type of mentality. And to be able to like shift focus and and be okay with like n- not having that consistency 
and and things being in flux, like that feels like a critical way to survive, especially because there's so many things that are out of our control. And like you said, like this, I'm very excited for this, like renaissance of seven to 10 years from now. And (laughs) I I hope we're all, (laughs) it's it's going to be great. (laughs) I think it's going to be like the, the roaring twenties where, you know, we're all like, okay, we have survived their stability. There's like this new time where like we, we got through it. We got through it. By the way, I think there's some trees lashing around my apartment. So if you hear that, doors closing in mine. But um, it's great. It's, it's great and creepy. Yeah. I love it. And seasonal. Speaking of seasons, but yeah, that that sort of it's almost surrendering to and figuring out what you need to survive, what you need to be happy and healthy. One of the things that we've talked about time and time again on on the No Film School podcast is is this idea of enjoying the process because it is the process that mm-hmm. is the job. And if you don't, you'll just be chasing unhappy. You'll you'll be chasing the idea of you know success and happiness, and and you'll maybe occasionally you'll get there, but that will not create the fulfilling you know gas that you need to sustain yourself. Yeah, I, I really think it's lovely the way you frame it as seasons. That is very much that has very much been my experience as well, and it it took quite a mental adjustment to frame things that way, because it's very natural if you're an ambitious person or even just an anxious person (laughs) to, to feel that the momentum is supposed to be perpetually building and, you know, that you're just like moving on from one, you're building from one success to another. If you're a, an A plus student as some of us, well, I was never an A plus student. I was a minimum for the A student, but but if you're used to (laughs) like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not worth the extra effort for the like. Who needs the plus? No, A minus. Exactly. The A Um, gets you the four (laughs) for the GPA. That's all that matters. Yeah, it's all that matters. But if you're used to doing well in your life and in the challenges that you have accomplished, it is not particularly profound to remark that. Boy, is it humbling to then try to be an artist and realize that there there is no forward momentum in the same way. You know, yeah, there is no ladder to climb, or you know whatever metaphor you, you most relate to and thinking of it seasonally, thinking of it as a lifestyle, being an artist Mm -hmm. as a lifestyle was really helpful to me because that allowed me to really place first and foremost, the things that were most important to me. And the things that are most important to me are doing work that feels extremely validating and important and interesting to me and doing Mm -hmm. it with people I respect and admire. And I will tell you that at this point in my life, and I'm about to turn 37, I have not really been paid to do that. (laughs) I've been paid to do other things that use my talents and skills, but I haven't yet really been paid to to make the work that is most meaningful to me. And I'm okay with that for now, right? But even for myself, I have to have a sense of like, well, for how long will that be okay? Right? Because I'm also like a practical nice Jewish girl from Los Angeles who would like to have a duplex at some point. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, that's and like, the dream. I, that's the dream. <laughs> you rent and, out the uh, other side. Yeah. Or like live with my sister. And like, I like nice wine. I like things that are expensive. Like I'm not romantic about penury. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm a little yeah, romantic exactly. about it, but not like, so, right. you know, you really have to figure out for yourself 
what things are most important to you and like how long you're willing to live without things that are really important to you. Yeah. And I think, especially as you get older, if you're early twenties, maybe this isn't so much a concern, but if you're in your thirties and you're thinking about a family and stuff like that, you know, you, you got to ask yourself some, some pretty stark questions, but yeah, there's also, again, I want to kind of distinguish between living as an artist and living as like, I don't, I don't want to use a pejorative term, but like, I know a lot of people in the business who don't think of themselves as artists. And I'm Mm -hmm. not saying that being an artist is better, but I have found it a very helpful framing because otherwise the other words available do all sound kind of pejorative. Like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not an artist because I'm not pretentious. I'm, I'm just a screenwriter or, you know, I'm a business person or I'm this or I'm that. The reality yeah. is that the the artists we all admire for the most part are also quite good at business. Otherwise they wouldn't have been able to <laughs> put together the projects that they've put together. Exactly. And the people I know who are happiest and most satisfied with their work in, in film, in television, also people who are agents, people who are managers, people who are yeah. producers, people who are not professionally working under the title of artists absolutely share in this artistic sensibility in this lifestyle and don't see that as being extremely separate from, from what they do. You know, they, they participate in that. That's part of how they approach their work. So I think what I'm really saying is that no, look, nobody needs us to make movies. Nobody. Yes. No one needs, no one needs our movies. No one, there are enough out there, right? So if you've decided to do this instead of going and making money in a different industry, you know, or yes. doing something else interesting. Why do it if you're not an artist? And, and, and what is that? Right. That's like, you're someone who's kind of in between classes, in between social structures, in between, yeah. you know, the different parts of our culture and society, looking at them, looking at these things and saying mm-hmm. something about them and trying to connect with other people. That, that's all it yeah. is. And that's why you don't have to be a, you know, capital A artist in order to do those things. And any way in which you participate in that process is, is, you know, is, is part of it. And so, yeah, if you're, you know, a young person living elsewhere, you don't have to move here to do that. Yeah. So as we wrap up, we like to ask our, our guests what advice they have for emerging filmmakers, which has been the subject of our entire conversation, emerging <laughs> and, and up and coming. And also I'd say anyone who works in this industry, but let, let's go to somebody listening at the very beginning of their career. They are either just about to change careers or they are just dipping their toe. Like what is the one piece of advice you would give that person besides pick a different career? <laughs> Unless you love it. Yeah, apart from that. I would say that if you're quite serious minded about pursuing this, then you need to educate yourself about the structural elements of our business. Mm -hmm. I don't mean in the abstract way of like, you know, what we've sort of been talking about with the streamers and the the, da da da. I mean, you need a good entertainment lawyer (laughs) and you need to understand how contracts work. And you need to know what life rights are. And you need to, there was this great, I think it was a, it was a Grace Jones quote. Grace Jones would talk about how she would 
whenever she was offered a new contract, she would sit there with her lawyers and make them go through every single element with her until she thoroughly understood it. And she didn't sign things that she didn't understand. And I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> thank you, <laughs> Grace Jones. It, and and the reason I, I say this is sort of, as we said at the beginning of the conversation, filmmaking requires many different skill sets and not everyone has all of them. Filmmaking also attracts artistic people who might feel insecure about things. And one of the things people feel insecure about is when they don't know how something works. And Mm -hmm. so I really want to encourage any young person or old person or person to not only be curious about all of the extremely practical logistical aspects of their projects and their contracts and their business negotiations and all of that, but to really pursue like make it make it a priority to understand mm-hmm. all of those pieces and to work with people who are willing to take the time to explain it to you. Like I really understand yeah. like a lot of young writers and filmmakers, they might have a lawyer at a firm and they really don't have a lot of money to like pay an hourly or maybe their their lawyer is on a contingent fee where they're going to take 5% of the money you presumably eventually are going to make. And so I understand why they feel uncomfortable calling that person up and either spending the money to pay them to explain the stuff or, you know, take up their time. If you're working with someone who you don't feel comfortable calling, maybe you should work with somebody else because Mm -hmm. you, it's your responsibility to understand what kind of business you're getting into. And the only other thing I'll say, and it's related, all of us, when we're first starting, collaborate with our friends and like try to do stuff together and like write projects together and whatnot. And it is extremely uncomfortable to talk with people about practical stuff. Like, yeah, let's say we write the script together. Who owns the copyright? How are we dividing up any potential fees? What are our, are we both credited writers? Is one a story by? Like these conversations can feel extremely awkward to have because it, it's like you're dividing up creative, because you are, you're dividing up creative ownership of a project. And that feels very intimate yeah. and, and scary. And it's a mix of friendship and creative process and money. I mean, it's all the horrible things. I promise you it is better to have that conversation before a single line has been written than afterwards. Because even if two people are going at it, you know, entering into a collaboration together with no intention of, you know, screwing the other person or, or misleading them, quite sincerely, they can have different points of view on how they envision this project going and their various roles on it. And it is awful to discover that you're at a different point of view than someone (laughs) at a a crisis point down the road. So the sort of the short version of this is before you work with someone on a project, write a collaboration agreement, even if it's just an email and you don't have a lawyer and, you know, write on paper with the person you're collaborating with how you see your collaboration working and like who owns the rights to your project, what your credits are and how you're going to divide up potential, you know, revenue or fees from the project. Um, That's, that's one of the most practical pieces of advice I could give. You just saved millions of dollars, millions of headaches and (laughs) well, and a lot of friendships, but it's well that, you know, I just, I promise you it's worth having that conversation later. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've been on the opposite side of that and I'm like, oh, it's such a bummer when it could have been just like a little uncomfortable and then actually not even that big of a deal. And then 
but then there's clarity. And that is one of the biggest things when it comes to having just like a psychologically safe working partnership, you know? I mean, it's that and people, people also Google chain of title so that you know Mm. what a chain of title is. Chain of title is who owns the rights to, to the project. And yeah, I mean, this is what I mean about the like structural parts of your business. Like the more fluent you are in all of this stuff, the easier you're going to find it to move in the world. And the less likely it is that you're going to end up in a, in a bad corner. Like maybe you do have a great project and you are getting the financing, but because you didn't correctly document your acquisition of the rights to the script or the underlying property or something, you end up, you end up screwed down the road. So yeah, just don't be afraid of the stuff you don't know. Ask questions, work with people who are willing to take the time to explain stuff to you that you don't know and work with people whose time and, and energy you respect and find valuable and who feel the same way about you. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Well, we're, we're going to have you back because this was just, again, <laughs> a conversation <laughs> that... Yes, I can't wait. I can't wait. Or maybe in the interim, we'll see. But thank you so much. Thank you for your openness and just honesty about your experience. And also this, this industry You've provided a bunch of clarity to me even more. So we appreciate it. <laughs> it's my pleasure and good luck to everybody. If you've got something cool to make, please go make it. I like cool stuff. Yay. I love that. Thank you again, Annalisa, for joining us. This conversation really shows you how information is power. And thank you to our listener for tuning in. Let me know what stood out to you. Was there anything surprising, unexpected? Also, as mentioned, we have a upcoming roundtable with a group of intimacy coordinators. What questions do you have for them? Please send them in. Podcast at nofilmschool.com. You can get more No Film School at nofilmschool.com. You can like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast across all podcast platforms. And you can follow us on social media at No Film School. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.